When we were down in Sarasota, I found out that there are two sides to Tim Donahue. When he was doing a sit-down interview, he was tense, pithy, deflective. But when he didn't have a microphone in his face, when we were sitting around the table shooting from the hip, Tim Donahue was a completely different person. They would, we'd get a check, we'd get our schedule, right? And with the schedule, they would give you first class tickets over two hours or, you know, full fare coach tickets for under two hours. So they would add it all up and issue you a check for like 11 grand for your airlines. They say, this is what we think it's gonna come to. So then you got the $11,000 check and we're fucking using frequent flyers. We're fucking driving, you know, we're fucking making, plus your per diem, we're making fucking 12, 13, 15 grand a month just in fucking outside your check. Donahue's telling me, Doug, and our executive producer, Donald Albright, about a scheme that the IRS dubbed Operation Slam Dunk. The ploy involved refs invoicing the NBA for first class airline tickets, downgrading the tickets, pocketing the difference, and then not reporting that additional income on their tax returns. When charges were filed in 1994, there were about 55 refs in the league. The IRS suspected 43 of them were participating in the scheme. Donahue said that when he started refing, his salary was 70 grand, he had a $20,000 playoff bonus, and then he made an extra $50,000, exaggerating his airline costs. And even if you paid for your airline tickets, you got the cheapest tickets you could get, and because we were the elite on the airlines, they put us in first class. So I'm spending, I'm spending $1,000 a month for all my trips getting 12 grand check. So it's six figures a year. And then sending in fake receipts to the office that you flew on those tickets that they sent you. And Lady was giving us fake receipts. I was gonna say, that's what you guys so we didn't, that's what they got. So you didn't pay taxes on it. Then after the scandal, before they sent you the 12 grand, they taxed it 25%. So, because they didn't trust anybody not to pay their taxes on it. Where were you getting the fake receipts? Uh, insurance agency, some lady out of uh, South Carolina was sending us all fake receipts. Who knows, everyone had a different connection, but she did about 25, 30 of us. When I explained that to Scala, he looked me right in the eye and he goes, Tim, you got this wrong. There's no way the NBA was doing that. I said, what are you kidding me? It's public knowledge. And he looked into it and he fucking couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. NBA refs were flying high until it all came crashing down. I'm Tim Livingston, and this is Whistleblower. Episode 8, What Changed? Since we started this podcast, we've been trying to track down FBI agent Phil Scala, and from just about everyone, including Donahue, we've gotten this response. I'll be shocked because, uh, if you can, to be honest with you, because I know what he's done to other people. He doesn't want to go and be recorded because then he can't say he was misquoted. When we first got to New York, Scala finally got on a call with me, but made it clear he didn't want to participate in the podcast. But then, as we're leaving an interview in Brooklyn, something interesting happens. Scala calls me out of the blue and says he's willing to meet. Doug Cole and I hurriedly piled into a cab, but there was an issue. 
So where are we going, Timbo? We're going to Nashua County, I think. Where? I'll tell you in a sec. No, what were the words you just said? <laughs> Look at that. That's going to Nassau? I'll do anything to meet with Phil Scala, but he wants to meet in Nassau County in an hour. He only has a half hour to meet, and it's rush hour in New York. Doug, who knows the Big Apple far better than I do, says it'll take us over two hours to get there. Can we push it back? How far? Dude, Nassau's way out there. Let me call him back. Or if we can do... Hey, Phil. So my, um, unfortunately, my uh, my partner, who's more well-versed in New York State, says that, so, what's, what? yeah, so what is your schedule? You're in town this week, though? Oh, you are? Okay, so let's try and do, I mean, can you do Friday? Where's, uh, where's Howard Beach? I just don't usually put it Let's plan on that. What? 10 o'clock in Howard Beach. Great. Perfect. We'll be there and appreciate the flexibility. All right, thanks, Phil. Howard Beach? Does he sound pretty locked? Yeah, he sounded like he actually wants to do it now. What changed? No fucking clue. Huh. Scala's granted a few interviews over the years, but he's never, in my opinion, been asked the right questions. Nobody's asked Scala point blank what the FBI's investigation revealed about the NBA as a corporation. Nobody's asked him if the FBI thought professional basketball was sport or choreographed ballet. Maybe he just likes playing hard to get. Where at Howard Beach? He's gonna text me a diner. Love that it's at a diner. That's uh -huh. awesome. And what time? 10 o'clock. So we're gonna be over there. It's Wednesday, so we have a day and a half to prep for Scala. 36 hours of sitting on pins and needles, praying that he'll actually show. That night, after we got back to the hotel, I called Donahue to fill him in on Scala's change of heart. Scala is like way the fuck out in like Nashua County or some shit. He's here, he, he offered to meet up with us today for a couple minutes, we couldn't make that happen. So we're scheduled to meet with him on Friday, and... What do you mean for a few minutes? What's a few minutes mean? He basically he told me a half hour. You know, he, he's been very non-committal and elusive up until this point. And then today he he showed, for whatever reason, you know, a willingness to to talk. However, you know, we, we need to record what he's saying, right? Right. I, I, I'm telling you, Tim, if you do this right, and I don't know how to do it, but this is this is gonna this is gonna fucking explode. I'll tell you one close. way you can really get to him is. I would say to him something along these lines, Tim. Uh, you know, Bill, I just, help me understand how Tim Dunnigy thinks so highly of you and has so many good things to say about you because in all reality, you were the one that arrested him. So it just seems like it's a strange relationship. And I think that'll break, you know, him down to, to want to help. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, I know. Well, uh, keep me posted on Scala because I'm telling you, somehow, some way, I'm sensing he's going to weasel out, but I hope not. Um, I will, so I'll let you know. If Scala doesn't back out, it'll be the most important interview we do for this project. He's the most trustworthy voice on the subject, a man of integrity, a renowned investigator, and most importantly, Scala has no implicit bias. He has zero dogs in this fight. He also has quite the resume. I'd love to read Phil Scala's complete list of achievements, but then we'd be here all day. This guy makes Elliot Ness look like a hack. 
Throughout his 29-year career with the FBI, Scala led investigations into all the big federal crimes. Securities fraud, money laundering, tax violations, narcotics, racketeering, homicide, pornography, firearms, and of course, organized crime. Scala was the supervisory special agent in the FBI's Gambino La Cosa Nostra squad, leading the unit in their investigation of Sammy the Bull Gravano, the murder of Paul Castellano, the dismantlement of the Gambino family in both New York and Sicily, the investigation and conviction of John Gotti, and as we all now know, the Donahue case. Not too shabby. Scala has been the recipient of numerous commendations and awards for outstanding service, most notably the FBI Shield of Bravery for leading the SWAT team in the 1993 Al-Qaeda bomb factory raid. And when he wasn't saving the world from imminent disaster, he even found a little time to get a master's in psychology from NYU. Clearly driven to a superhuman degree, you could call it a fully actualized life, or you could call it a death wish. But there's no denying. Phil Scala is a badass. So the fellas might have been a little intimidated. Okay, so top of my list, did the NBA foster a fair competitive landscape or was it entertainment? That's the big question. We're in our hotel in New York going over questions for Scala. I've had these questions ready for about five years, but I'm making sure we haven't missed anything. I've never understood the timeline of that TV deal they signed in relation yeah. to the scandal. I definitely want to know if he knows about that. Yeah, never been clear on that either. I want to ascertain from Scala whether he thinks the league's most controversial games and series deserve an asterisk. He interviewed a lot of people in the NBA community over the course of his investigation, and I want to do the same. So I called the two former players who never mince words about anything. Rashid Wallace, and Bonzi Wells. After the Sacramento Lakers Western Conference Finals and after the Miami-Dallas 2006 Finals, what were the conversations like with you guys as players? I mean, it wasn't about just having conversations. It was just something that was understood. It didn't have to be explained. I mean, we all saw it. I mean, it's plain as day. We were just waiting on somebody else to see it. Even when the thing with Donnie, he came out about him being a cheat and this and that, I wasn't satisfied because let the referees tell it. They do all their homework. They analyze every game. They critique these referees. And that was my whole thing. I was almost like the, the assassination of JFK. The, you know, like this one guy, you got a lone gunman, you know, and I didn't prove it that theory. So I'm still waiting on them to give us the real. And I'm looking forward to Donahue, you know what I'm saying, if he can, ratting out the rest of the guys so we know. The guy that Donaghy alleges was the real fixer for the NBA. And she, you've used the term company man, and this is the same term that he uses, is Dick Pavetta. Game seven of the 2000 Western Conference Finals. He refereed game six, the 2002 Western Conference Finals. You know, she, I'd love to hear your thoughts maybe on Pavetta. Was he one of the company men? Well, yes, I, I, I feel like... In my opinion, again, people, Dick Vivetta was a company man. But I think the thing that made him different, at least he'll talk to you. He's going to give you some fouls, but he's not going to give you the, the sticking up your ass foul or nothing like that. You know what I mean? But he's going to make his presence known in the game. The other guys, they ain't going to talk to you at all. 
they ain't gonna say nothing. Like at least you can go dick. Like damn, dick. You know, she watched the elbow. I, I mean, I know I reached my hand in there, but after he elbowed me, blah blah blah, whatever the case may be, at least dick could hear you out. I mean, we knew how the game was gonna sway, but those guys that. They wasn't listening at all. They was like, look, I got this power. For this next two hours, I'm the man. A lot of them guys that just fuck you over and, you know, they just push you on your way. At least Dick Vavetta kiss you while he fucking you. You know? <laughs> I mean... Stroke stroke you a little I mean, bit. You know what I mean? That's the least he, you know what I'm saying? We, he, he, he gonna fuck you regardless, but at least he'll do it in a, a finesse kind of way. You know, them other guys are just, man, get, a, get your ass out of here. We fucking you and we don't care. You better not say nothing. You're gonna leave early and lose some money. At least Dick would be like, man, it's going to be okay. I know I gave you a foul on the tech, but it's okay. Just do better next time. Rashid and Bonzi are pretty casual about the idea that the league's most well-known official, Dick Bavetta, one of the few referees to be inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame, was a company man. And what's crazy is that Rashid and Bonzi went on to name a handful of other referees that they felt were more company man than Bavetta. Sheed and Bonzi aren't the only players who think this. I've talked to numerous other players, on and off the record, who have expressed similar sentiments. But the craziest part of all this is the NBA betting scandal was 13 years ago, and nobody ever talks about it. If it was known in the NBA community that this was happening, why are we stalking an FBI agent over a decade later, praying that he'll give us some clarity on whether or not Donahue was the only one? A lot of people think that Donaghy, and this is how the NBA branded the scandal, they wanted to put the narrative out there that Donaghy was the only one. What do you say to people that think that he was a rogue ref? I don't think he was, in my opinion. But of course, they have to say that, you know, they're they're a billion dollar company, man. So yeah, they're going, you know what I'm saying? Okay, he's the only one. He's the one that got caught. He's the one that we have on tape. Da 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 da. So the other guys who were, as you said, allegedly down with him, of course, we don't know that, but allegedly did it with him, they just slowly fade to black. If you've gotten this far and wondered why no other referees have corroborated Donahue's allegations against the NBA, the reason is pretty simple. When referees retire, when they fade to black, they're often kept on the NBA payroll in some shape or form. Monty McCutcheon, is the NBA's Vice President of Referee Development and Training. Joey Crawford is a Referee Development Performance Director. Steve Javi became a Rules Analyst for ESPN. Keeping referees in supervisory positions or on TV, keeping them quiet forever, isn't coincidence. It's smart business. Going about their day. Where they're thinking about that money. They had a quite a, a few other scams, and I'm pretty sure that they were involved with the whole airline ticket scam. I'm pretty sure these same referees probably somehow, some way were involved with that. And Donahue, I'm not mad as I was at Donahue because he's taking a lot of slack for this shit and he's, I think he's paid his debt to society. And I just hate the fact that he's the only person that they put on front street. I may be a fool, but I ain't no damn fool. You know, I mean, you can't <laughs> make me think nothing like that because there's too much technology out there. I mean, they, they would have caught that if just his colleagues would have caught that. They would have ratted him out. You know what I'm saying? Nobody said nothing. You know what I'm saying? It was just like, okay, Here's our guy. We're gonna we're gonna parade him in front of everybody. He's gonna be our scapegoat. You know, it's almost like the magic trick. You know, look over here, but the trick is really going on over here. You know what I'm saying? So that's basically what they did to us. They did some old Houdini ass shit to us. The Houdini and Bonzi's analogy, as we've discussed previously, was former NBA commissioner David Stern. 
One of the biggest things I need to grasp from Phil Scala is how the FBI viewed Stern. Did the NBA leak the story? Was Donahue the scapegoat? What other magic tricks, if any, did David Stern have up his sleeve? David Stern is a very controversial figure as far as the NBA goes. Obviously, he helped make you guys a lot of money as professional basketball players. He, he built the league up. You know, what do you guys think about David Stern? Man, to be honest, I've only been around David Stern a few times. One of the real times I remember is when the time when all the Trailblazer shit was just at the, the peak. And I remember uh, he came to our locker room. And I remember he just came in the locker room and he just started talking, just kind of just getting on our ass a little bit. And I, and I watched him talk to Paul Allen, the great Paul Allen, who's a gazillionaire. He was talking to Paul Allen like a, a little boy, like, get your, get your team together, get your shit together. Like, he was just coming in and I'm looking at this little man like, damn, he got that Napoleon shit too. And I get you got all the power and all that type of stuff, but, you know, guys like us are from different worlds. Like, you can't be talking to us like that, like, you know what I mean? Like we'll kick your ass. Like that's how we, you know, we, you know, we look at it like that. And you know, when you look at a little five, seven dude talking slick and talking grimy and grizzly to you, you know, you kind of just go tone deaf. So I wasn't really feeling David Stern my whole career. He was just a guy whose name was on the basketball. And he ran the league, but he wasn't a personable person to me. So I just looked at him as a little Napoleon type fuck. And you know what I'm saying? He got the power and he know he got the juice and he know it and he gonna use it. And I don't really like dudes like that. Like, I like humble guys. I mean, it's okay to have power, but don't be trying to flex it on people and try to belittle people. And I think that's the way I felt on the few chance times that I did meet him. But I could be totally wrong because I've heard some great things about him, but that's just what I saw. Rashid, I'd love to hear your two cents on David Stern. How did you view him during your playing days? In my opinion, when, when I was playing, it was, it was someone who was abusing their power. You, you could tell. And I'm not just saying this just to be saying it. He, look, you can look at it. He wasn't a fan favorite. Why do you think that when he goes to these games, he, he has more security than we do? You know what I'm saying? So he's not a fan favorite because of some of the things he do, some of the things he says. And then for me, I'm not, I, I guess I was never one to be a, a big fan of his because you already got guys proven guilty before you even hear anything. You coming with suspensions, you coming with fines before you even hear my side. And you always rolling with the side of the referees, which is supposed to be a whole separate company. The idea of referees not being governed by the NBA isn't new. Phil Jackson, who is the coach of Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, and Shaquille O'Neal, probably benefited from favorable refereeing as much as anyone. Said after the NBA betting scandal, a lot of things have happened in the course of the Tim Donahue disposition. I think we have to weigh it as it comes out, and we all think that probably referees should be under a separate entity than the NBA entirely. That's what we'd like to see in the NBA. I mean, do we want to ask him what he thinks about the notion of ref accountability, what he thinks about the way that the NBA keeps refs on payroll or in supervisory positions forever, and the way they engineered their system is to avoid any sort of scrutiny? Yeah. See if he grasps the social parallels. And Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's 1 a.m. the night before our interview with Scala, and Doug and I are fully ready to interrogate the interrogator. 
What about the, you know, all the shit Donahue told us at Disneyland about the, you know, the debauchery and the grudges and the favoritism? Like, that was like a fucked up culture behind the wheel. Yeah. If he trusts Donahue and he trusts Donahue's testimony, then I'm sure Donahue told him all about that. So I guess it'll just be dependent on how much he's willing to tell us. And Yeah, especially with the recorder. Yeah, exactly. We'll see if Scala can elaborate on what Doug and I heard from Donahue at Disneyland, but a major theme of that conversation was being a referee is a thankless job. You know, the referees in the NBA are just a necessary evil for the league. Like baseball, I'd say within five years, you don't see umpires anymore. They're done. They're going to use the strike zone. They're going to have somebody just on the field, look up at the monitor uh, or relay something to a guy on the field that's going to make a call, but it's all going to be computerized. If the NBA could do that, they'd do it in a second. Referees are a necessary evil. It's why Donahue never wanted to be one and why after the scandal, he was so easy to discard. They shouldn't have treated me that way. We called up David Stern and said, listen, let's come together and talk and so Tim can explain what he did, how he did it. So, and they fucking said, fuck you and then took my pension like that. You know, I had four kids. You know, I got lucky and recovered, but you know, I could be fucking homeless somewhere if I didn't have parents and good friends and they didn't fucking care. Donahue painted a vivid picture for Scala and the FBI about the NBA's refereeing culture. And according to him, the high stress nomadic lifestyle took a toll on many of his former colleagues. Right. And look at, there were so many alcoholics and drug addicts on the staff, and they didn't fucking care. And then got caught in the uh, crack house in Miami, so he finally went to rehab. They put in rehab because he was fucking drinking and fucking, he'd have a bottle of fucking Gatorade and vodka at the scores table, smashed into a fucking toll booth with me coming back from Milwaukee with she told on him. Then they made him go to rehab, but they don't fucking care about anybody. I mean, he was drinking, literally. At halftime, he'd walk out with fucking vodka and Gatorade and have it at the scores table, and every time out, in the second half, he'd fucking take a hit of it. Yeah. Then he finally, they made him go to rehab. To echo Mark Cuban, these are the characters in charge of policing a multi-billion dollar corporation. We bleep their names for obvious reasons, but the people Donahue just named were refereeing some of the most important games in NBA history. Yeah, we were, I was in the backseat in the front seat and he hit the fucking toll booth. Boom! <laughs> she looked back at me and said, uh, you know, do something. I said, you do something. Said, what the fuck's he driving for? Why aren't you driving? But he wanted to fucking drive. Oh, I was in a car with He almost fucking, he, and he had a DUI. He was another one that was a bad drinker. Fucking alcoholic. Bad alcoholic. A lot of bad alcoholics bad alcoholic. What do you think about He was always a good dude, but he's an alcoholic. Loved the gamble and he's an alcoholic. I was, I went to a casino with I swear to God, not exaggerating. He had 25 Miller Lights. We left Seattle and drove to Vancouver. He drank from the fucking, like I'm not a drinker, so I drove. From the time we left at like lunchtime till three in the morning and got up the next day Looked like shit, but refereed the fucking game. 25 fucking beers. 
tells a story. He got all fucked up and didn't know he had a fucking game at one o'clock in the afternoon, went to bed at like four o'clock in the morning. They woke him up out of the hotel. He says he, he fucking ref drunk. It was drinking, chasing pussy. But it was chasing to go out and, you know, see if you got lucky. Every fucking night you were on the road. Every fucking night. So that's interesting because you told me about a lot of referees and their infidelities. There was only one guy that didn't cheat on his wife. That was He was the only guy I know that didn't cheat on his wife. Everybody else from the minute you fucking got in your car and went to the airport was fucking chasing pussy. 27 days a month. What are you going to do? What are you going to do, you know? And I was just so bored, I fucking just got into the gamble. And that was my, you know, time. I, I work out and I'd sit in my room and fucking look at the lines. And then me and went into Harris one time, baseball hats and everything, and there was like seven players. So we we're like, oh fuck. We drove like an hour and a half down the highway to another casino just to gamble. That was, that was one of the reasons why Scala liked me because he realized that although I did something fucking stupid, the atmosphere there was like a fucking circus. Howard Beach is a neighborhood in Southwest Queens made up primarily of nondescript single family homes. It's the neighborhood where John Gotti lived while running America's most powerful crime syndicate, the Gambino family. And it's the neighborhood where we're slated to meet Phil Scala. It's our last day in New York, so with our bags packed, we head to the diner Scala has chosen for our meet. A diner where, I assume, the renowned FBI agent has sipped coffee with characters far shadier than our cast of booze and gambling addicted referees. I'm going over my list of questions to Scala, double, triple, quadruple checking to make sure I haven't missed anything. We arrive at the diner 15 minutes early and get placed in a booth by the kitchen. I was hoping to sit somewhere isolated, far away from the crowd, but this must be the most popular diner in New York. It's packed. I take a seat in the booth. It's 9.50. I'm trying to play it cool, but my eyes dart up to the entrance every time someone walks in the door. It's 10 a.m. Every minute feels like an hour. 10.02, 10.05, Then, a man in his 60s walks in and greets the hostess. I slowly rise from my seat. The man takes off his jacket, puts it on the rack, and turns. It's him. Whistleblower is a production of Tenderfoot TV and Whistleblower Media in association with Cadence 13. Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay are executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV. Myself and Doug Matica are creators and executive producers on behalf of Whistleblower Media. Our co-executive producer is Colo Casio. Our lead producer is Alex Vespasted. Co-producers are Mason Lindsay, Matt Keller, and Paul Kasheri. Sound design, mixing, and mastering by Cooper Skinner. Additional mixing by Devin Johnson. Original music is by Makeup and Vanity Set. 
cover design and illustration by Mr. Soul. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum and Grace Royer at UTA, Ryan Nord in the Nord Group, Beck Media and Marketing, Station 16, Paul Anderson and Nick Pinella of Workhouse Media, Max Hacker and John Bagakis, the teams at Tenderfoot TV and Cadence 13, and to Michael Imperioli. Check out his new podcast, Talking Sopranos, wherever you get your podcasts. Lastly, thank you to Liz Livingston and Tali Ravid for your invaluable insights and for never letting us give up on this story. For more information about the podcast, visit whistleblowerpod.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, five stars preferably, and review. Thanks.